Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. When Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin first talked about making Broken Record, one of the artists they really wanted to speak with was Tom Petty. But then right as we started production on the show, Tom Petty sadly passed away. Everyone was processing what happened, including Malcolm and Rick. So one afternoon, they got together at Shangri-La, turned the mics on, and talked about Petty and his music. About how Rick first fell in love with the band driving around LA, listening to Running Down a Dream. And the plans Petty had to put out a trove of unreleased material from Wildflowers, an album Rick produced. That album was one of many high watermarks of Petty's career. Rick's long thought, and he told Malcolm that day, he believes the album's so good because Petty was trying to impress him. Petty's lead guitarist and occasional co-writer Mike Campbell talked to Rick last spring, confirming Rick's notion. They talk in depth about the making of Wildflowers and about Mike's new album with a band called The Dirty Knobs. It's the first band Mike's ever been a part of without Petty, who he started playing with in the early 70s. And it's the first time Rick's been able to catch up with Mike since Tom's death. They talk about their work together over the years, and how the Heartbreakers always managed to find new life. Plus, Mike tells a great story about how he wrote the riff for Running Down a Dream. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right, enjoy the episode. Here's Mike Campbell in conversation with Rick Rubin. Let's let's start talking about 
Gainesville, if that's cool. Can we, Gainesville? Can we do that? Yeah. Oh, Gainesville was some of the happiest times of my life. That's where I uh, I got out of high school in Jacksonville. And I went to college in Gainesville, University of Florida, on an Air Force loan society. My dad was in the Air Force because we didn't have much money. But anyway, I went to college there, and there was a real uh, healthy music scene going on, lots of bands and a couple of parks in the, on the university where you could play for free. And I started making friends with different musicians. About about what year? About what year was this? Seventy uh, two. Well, I got out of high school. That was seventy. Who? How did Mud Crutch become a band? Mud Crutch was a band with Tom Petty, Tom Ledden, and some other guys. And I, they were one of the bands that was. They would do country rock, mm -hmm. but they would throw in some original songs now and then. Mm -hmm. And I would see them at the. Uh, park, the free gigs out in the lawn. And I thought, well, these guys are, you know, there's something going on here, you know. And then I had a band with Randall Marsh. It was a, a trio, like a blues jam acid trio. And and turns out, I'm, Randall and I were sharing, I don't want to get too long with it, we were sharing a farm at the edge of town. And I saw a thing on the university student union, uh, Mud Crutch looking for a new drummer. So I said, oh, and Randall and I were kind of fed up with what we were doing. So I said, I should give this to Randall. He might, you know, get a gig here. And I thought these guys were pretty good. They had harmonies and, you know, they weren't a jam band like we were. They actually had songs. And so I told them about it and they came out to our farm to audition Randall. And I was in the back room and it turns out they just lost their guitar player too that day. And so they're going... <laughs> Randall, do you know anybody? Well, there's this guy in the back, you know. And I was a geek. I had came in cutoffs and short hair. I did. I was not a hippie yet, you know. I was not hip. How old are you at this time? Nineteen. Uh, Twenty-two. Twenty-one. Something like that. And uh, I came walking in with my little Japanese guitar, and they just went, "Oh God, no!" no. <laughs> and then I said, "Okay." And it was Tom, the two Toms, Tom Led and Tom Petty, and Jim Lenahan, who became our lighting director. He was the lead singer. That's another story. And Randall. And so they said, well, they were looking at me like, oh, how do we get out of this? So what songs do you know? How about Johnny Be Good? Everybody knows that, right? And they all like looked at me. And Tom tells a story on the tour. He says, at the end of the song, he said like, I don't know who you are, but you're in my band forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. And uh, you know, he was telling that on the last tour as his little bit. But, uh, so... Uh, they forgot how I looked. I, I fixed that in time, but uh, I got a better guitar. But we just hit it off right away, and I realized Tom was writing songs, and I was starting to write a little bit too. Not as good as him, but I had the the inkling to write, and so we hit it off. And he showed me some songs. I showed him some. He goes, "Oh, that sounds kind of like Roger McGuinn. That you should keep working on that." And so we just became fast friends from then on. We just connected and. It so like, seemed like any time he would have an idea, I knew what to put with it. Or if I had an idea, he knew what to put with it instinctively. It was just one of the magical things we crossed paths. Beautiful. I do miss him. Let's go back. Let's yeah. go. I miss him too. Yeah. Let's go back even further. First memories of music. What was the first thing that got you excited about music? Well, that's easy. It was my dad. Um, my dad was in the Air Force, and he would come home put on a record and lay on the couch and just zone out for an hour. 
and it was either Elvis or Johnny Cash. And I would look at him going like, whatever he's hearing has got him completely hypnotized. He's really deep into this. And so I would listen to it. And I immediately picked up on the guitars, Scotty Moore and Luther Perkins, who played with Johnny. And I just was enamored with the sound. And then I asked him one day, Dad, why do you listen to Johnny Cash so much? And he goes, because he speaks the truth. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Words of wisdom, you know. And um, that was my first. And then, of course, the Beatles in that generation, they came on TV and everything changed. And I had to have a guitar, which I couldn't afford. But that was my, when I saw them, and it, it just blew my mind because up until then, you'd watch the Ed Sullivan show which is the only place to see new music and be like some guy up there singing and a band somewhere out. You didn't even see them. It's just a singer. And the Beatles came on. First of all, they were almost my age and there was no band behind the curtain. The guy's playing the bass and singing. The drums are right there. They're all this four little combo and they're all doing it with no help from anybody. And they're really fucking good. And the girls are going nuts. <laughs> That's what I want to do. <laughs> so you got a guitar after seeing the Beatles? Yeah, I got my I got a pawn shop guitar. My mom got me a fifteen dollar guitar that I couldn't. It was unplayable, but I didn't know. I thought that boy, these guys are good. This is so hard. How do they do it? Because <laughs> the strings are high. Yeah. I would bleed. You know, I loved it so much. I would just play until I bleeded. And uh, so I just got the bug. And it's like once I found the guitar, nothing else mattered. Mm. I'm going to play this guitar as much as I can. I got to go to school, but when I get back, I'm on the guitar. And I just loved it. I still do. So then you're in Mud Crutch. And um, what kind of gigs did you do? What was it like being in that band? Well, it was it was a lot of fun. And we barely made enough money to make a living, which was really cool. Because I was living in this my friend's garage for 15 bucks a month. He let me live there. And uh, with Mudcrutch, we would play <clears throat> women's club dances. Sometimes the university would give us a couple of hundred bucks to play. Uh, fraternities, occasionally, not too much because we didn't play covers. Our biggest gig where we really got good was, was a Dove Steer Room on the edge of town, a topless bar. That was my first gig. I'm glad you reminded me. This is the best story of all. And it was great because it was four sets a night all week long. Okay, so we had to throw in a few covers because we only had, you know, so many originals. But, uh, and we would say, oh, here's one by Santana, and then we'd do our own, you know. And they were so drunk, they didn't care. But the funny thing is the topless bar, on the, like the third song, they had two uh, dance uh, stands on either side of the stage. And these two girls would jump up, and they'd have their, you know, and almost halfway through the song, they'd pull their tops off. And the first time they did it, the band quit playing, like... <laughs> <laughs> We never seen that before. Oh, okay. And you know, we learned real fast. But uh and then on Thursdays they'd have wet t-shirt contest. And wet t-shirt contest. This is Gainesville, okay? It's a lot of deep redneck culture. And so Dove's steakhouse, topless bar, you're gonna get some of the seediest residents are gonna come to that bar. And you know, they were great, they were so drunk, they were great audiences usually. But on what t-shirt contest night, they'd have the girls get up and they'd drench them in, they'd have their t-shirts on, they'd drench them in water so you could see everything. And they'd get up and dance and all the guys would come down front, like all the drooling drunks. But we got good 
because we played for like two months every night. And I got like a hundred bucks a week. Wow. You know, for playing, you know, however many hours. But that was a lot of money. And we had a house just up the street that we shared and we could pay our rent and buy some wine or, you know, burgers and we could live, you know, as musicians. So the first time I was a working musician and I really liked it, you know, making my money with my instrument. So you played a lot of hours every yeah. day in front of people. Yeah. So we got tight. We learned how to how to to work the room. And, you know, it's like, we're not the Beatles, but I read about the Beatles going to Hamburg. And when you play four hours every night, yeah. after a month, you get good. one, two, three, four, we got this. You know what I mean? It just, you get good. Builds confidence. Yeah. And and the communication between the members gets that, really. And just muscle memory, everything. Absolutely. You just get good the more you work it. And so we got really good. And then we started getting some better gigs at the university here and there. But eventually you reach the point where this is as far as we can go in this town. You know, we, we're at the top of the game here, but that's it. Mm -hmm. Gonna have to make a record, I guess, you know. If we want to move up, we gotta move on up to a bigger city, you know, and get more serious about it. And that's what we did. So what was the next step? Well, we pulled all our money. We made a demo at Benmont's house when his parents were home. Benmont was the rich kid. He had a, his parents had a nice house, so we, we pulled in a truck and, and recorded a demo live to- When uh, did Benmont get in? Because we're, oh, well, we're still in Mudcrutch. Mudcrutch, right. Uh, it was Tom Ledden left the band after about three years. We had a disagreement over uh, Dubs. He told Dubs that we wanted more money, which we didn't, and he fired us, and so we fired him. <laughs> we all made up after that. But mm -hmm. then uh, we had seen Benmont around, and uh, he was just a great musician, and so we, we, let's get a piano in the band. So he joined the band about two two years into it. And you were still called Mudcrutch. Yeah, we were still, it was, the name stayed the same. Mm -hmm. But we cut a live uh, demo of three songs on live onto uh, tape. And uh, we pulled all our money and three of the guys went out to, to LA to shop the tape. We got a couple of feelers, one with Shelter Records, who had a studio in Tulsa. And they said, well, why don't you, if you're coming out to LA, which we were planning, just gonna go out there and take our chances. Stop in Tulsa on the way out and see if we can, we'll make a demo there. We did. We liked Danny Cordell a lot. He's kind of like you. He was just kind of like, he seemed to have an overview of, you know, when you guys do that, that's not so cool. But when you keep doing that, that's that's the <laughs> shit, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I really love that guy. And uh, so he, he kind of got it, you know, and he got Tom, he got the songwriting and he got the band and he signed us. I remember him coming to visit us when we were making Wildflowers. He came to the mix session. Yeah. And I remember Tom was really excited that he was coming. He had a vibe. Yeah. He was a very wise man. And I remember that. And I remember we played him, we played him and we got and he always liked me too. He always thought that, you know, you know, you're really insecure, but you're important to this. He always yeah. gave me confidence. Yeah. And uh we were listening to that those tracks and you wrecked me came on, he looked at me and he goes, That's the one I've been waiting for. <laughs> God bless him. <clears throat> Amazing. Wow, you're getting misty thinking about all these memories. Beautiful. Okay. No, it's good. So you get signed to Shelter. Yeah. And then what happens? <laughs> you know, it's funny you had mentioned that because I just found a journal from those days that mm -hmm. I was keeping of our first days at Shelter Records. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I would write like, went in the studio today, cut the song, whatever. We think it's the next single. 
or the first single. Next page, it's not the first single. It's really not that good. Next page, went in the studio for four hours, didn't get a track. We suck. Next day, drinking too much. <laughs> it was like greenhorns trying to figure out how to make a record. We didn't yeah. know anything about playing in the studio. Yeah. And we struggled a lot at the beginning. But Cordell stuck with us because he liked the songs. And then at one point in the journal, it goes, we went in the studio with the heart, with the band, you know, Stan and Ron and Ben and Mike and Tom. And then the next day or next week, Tom brought in four songs, American Girl, Breakdown. It's like, it's like night and day. All of a sudden, it just happened. Wow. The floodgates opened. As soon as the songs came in, we were there. Wow. You know, and on top of a sudden it started to sound good. Amazing. You know I mean? And that kind of blew my mind when I read that. It's like it was just a moment in time where that switch turned on. You go, I guess he, in his mind, he thought, this, I got to step up now. And like, you know, all the songs, good songs. Do you remember if there was anything in. else going on in his life that would have sparked that? I don't know. I think it was just a good question. Yeah, Who knows? Curious. No, there's nothing that players that anything, any uh, life changing uh, yeah. event at that moment, other than that the band that what became the Heartbreakers was in one room. And maybe that was just, a, that energy was enough mm -hmm. to, to turn his switch on. Yeah. It is interesting how that happens, how you see. And I wouldn't have remembered that if I hadn't seen the journal, but it was almost like night and day, struggling, 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 yeah. boom. Here's the songs, here's the band. Ready to go. And how did how did it work out that you guys got popular in the UK first? Well, we put the record out and Breakdown and American Girl got a little bit of play in Boston and San Francisco, but it was not happening, really. And then we got offered a tour uh, opening for Nils Lofgren, who had just had a hit over there. And we went over to England, which was so... What a dream. We're going to England to play. We have a record out, you know. We didn't realize the record's not really happening right now. We're got, we got gigs, we're happening. You know, in our little mind, we were already there, you know. But we had no idea what was about to happen. And we got over there and we started touring around England with Nils. And we were really good live. And I remember the first gig we played in England was in Wales. And we were opening for Nils. And we had no respect for the opening act, you know. We're like, we're gonna, we're taking no, no prisoners, you know. We're gonna take this moment, what hell or high water, kind of assholes about it, really. But that's the way it was. And Tom and I went out there, and the first gig in England, we're all like, and Tom is running around, and I'm running around, and we're doing our thing, and the crowd's going crazy, and we got wrapped up in our cords. <laughs> it was a total spinal tap because we had lost, and we're standing there like literally wrapped tied tight the roadies had to come out <laughs> but it was great you know that's just how exciting it was Amazing. and then from that we started getting good press they would come to see Nils Lofgren and go oh fuck what was this shit that happened right before that you know they kind of kicked his ass got where we almost felt bad for him because we were really going for it and it was our time and it wasn't his time so we kept getting really good press at the end of that tour they booked our, our own little tour while we were there Got great press, and the record started to pick up, and somehow that's we came back to the states, and that spilled over. So it seems like it the live the live drove the record instead of the other way around. Yeah, at that time it did, until the record caught on. Yeah, 
and then it just um and then what was the first song that really caught on it was either breakdown or american girl i think it was breakdown i think it was breakdown got the most airplay but then american girl came on so if we were to go through and tell me if you need to see the the covers to be able to remember but how would you say if, if we talk about each album in order your memories of what made each of those what it was do you know what I'm saying? In the making of it. Mm-hmm. Would you remember, so for the, from the first record, well, the first record, and it's the first, so. Yeah, the first record was us finding what we were. Yeah. And I think American Girl was the song. I remember when we did, we cut that song. The arrangement on the harmonics on the guitar, the groove, the character, the singing, the sound of the record. I remember when we did that, I, even at my young age, I thought, nobody else can do that quite like we do this this is our thing a chiming guitar thing that we, we still do um and so that record was just a group of songs that i love still it's probably might be my favorite record of all and it was us just like getting getting it figuring it out and kind of like wow you got that this is good you know We're, second record was following that up some good songs, maybe not quite as as deep in the songs, but getting a little more involved in the studio, you know, production and and uh, layering and stuff. Then we we kind of reached a level where we were kind of in a cult, I guess. And looking back on it, we weren't huge mainstream yet, but we had we could get gigs and we could maintain. And the third album, Jimmy Iovine shows up. And you know it's like okay we're on a mission. Let's we want to we want to really like grab it now. See if we can really get on top. You know, hit a home run instead of a doubles. You know, mm-hmm. and so the third record we worked really hard on the sounds like to where it wasn't fun. A lot of it uh, at times it was, but it was really like a lot of pressure on ourselves and nitpicky about you know four days on a snare sound and stuff wow. like that and. Yeah, there was the only record I actually walked out on one session. We were doing Refugee for the seventieth time, and and I just couldn't figure out what, why it didn't, why it wasn't working. And I just and we'd been trying. Okay, let's let's do this. Let's move the guitar amp over there. Let's try a different snare. Let's try da 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 da. da. And okay, well, no, that doesn't sound right. And I just said, "Fuck this! I'm out of here. I can't take this anymore." And I went. We left town. We went up to Santa Barbara, and I got a little house on the uh, little shack on the beach, and just sat there for a while. What the fuck is happening? Why can't we make this song? And of course, it became one of our biggest songs. I came back with my hair clear. It's the only time that the pressure got to me where I just got to get out of this room because it got intense and we were really hard on ourselves. Mm. And Iovine was pushing for greatness too. And uh, we were fighting that thing, as you know, in the studio where uh, you know how the song goes and you know how it sounds when you're standing there playing together. And then you go into the control room and it's a completely different sound. This doesn't sound like anything like it did out there. How do we get that in here? And it's not easy. No. It's not easy. No. And that was driving us nuts, but yeah. we did get it. It's a great sounding record. It's a unique sounding record, uh, looking back on it. But anyway, I don't know if that answers your question. No, yeah. So we're up to, so, but now we're up to the third album. And okay. that was one that we got, that's the first time where it got unpleasant to be in the studio. <laughs> yeah. And it was our biggest hit. You know? Yeah. There you go, figure. And it took the longest to make at that point. And cost the most. And yeah. cost the most. 
And then what was after that? Long After Dark was a follow-up to that. Mm-hmm. And we did a record plant, again, with Iovine. And by that point, we were feeling a little full of ourselves because we'd had a big hit, you know. I think uh, Torpedoes got to number two because we hit the wall, the Pink Floyd wall. We couldn't crack number <laughs> one. But it did really well and uh, a couple of videos. And so we felt, you know, we're, we've, now how do we stay here? And it's just continue on. I mean, make another record mm-hmm. as good as that one. And, you know, that's a, that's an interesting thing with, with musical career. If you make a great record, then every record after that is going to be measured to that one. Yeah. And we were figuring that out, you know, like, and you know, when you when you have a little success, you buy some time to experiment. Mm-hmm. Like I said, try orchestra or try different players or different uh, production ideas. So we were doing some of that on Only After Dark. And it had some hits on it. I think You Got Lucky and Woman in Love. Oh, no, Woman in Love. Oh, I, I, miss, I missed one, Hard Promises. Mm-hmm. You're right, I should have the album covers. <laughs> well, my Hard Promises and Long After Dark were follow, you know, continuation of Torpedoes with Iovine. Mm-hmm. Just trying to, you know, write great songs and make them sound good. And hope Did it feel like it was getting easier or harder, would you say? Easier. Easier to record. Easier to record because we learned. Yeah, we learned we, we, for by trial and error. Well, don't do that again. Don't set the drums up over there because that ain't going to sound good. You know, don't use that bass. That doesn't sound good. Use this. One. Don't use that amp. We can save a lot of time. Get straight to the stuff we know that works, and mm-hmm. spend more time on the music and less on the sounds and that. So in that sense, it got easier. But you know, writing great songs is always hard. <laughs> I mean, and yes and no. You know. It's easy to to write a song, but then to, you got to measure it up against. Well, this is pretty good, but is it tor- "Damn the Torpedo"? Is it "Refugee" or "Here Comes My Girl"? Mm. Almost. Yeah, it's <laughs> well, all, it's get hard. back to work. But it's, it's hard to know. It's like we're, we're well, you all don't too know. close. It's you like, don't no, know. Nobody knows. You don't know until somebody says no. Yeah, I don't think so. It doesn't sound good to me. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't know because you're so close to it. Yeah. But then you get to a point where you realize you can't really worry about it. You yeah. Just do what do the work. And don't try to measure it up. Absolutely, it seems like now, in that moment talking, when you free yourself from it, you that's when they can it. they can come. The great songs can come much easier. That's the trap, yeah, or the, or the release. If if you, as soon as you stop thinking about what's wrong, there's nothing wrong. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but songs are mysterious. You know, as a whole other conversation, where mm-hmm. they come from and why they come when they come. Mm-hmm. But. Um, we just kept slugging along, you know. After after torpedoes, we bought some success and had had more. Our lifestyles went up, and we played bigger gigs. We started playing arenas, and it just felt like living a dream. And it sounds so corny, but we were living the dream, yeah. and we never thought we we really would or not. And then we're just looking around, going, wow, it's it's working out for us. How blessed are we? <laughs> How did this happen? Yeah, I could be back in Gainesville playing at the Women's Club, and here I am. <laughs> Amazing. It matched the square garden. How did I get here? Amazing. That's the thing. You look at how did I get here? That pops up a lot. Yeah. Anyway, you know. Yeah, it, do- it doesn't seem possible. Well, there's hope. There's hope in <laughs> dreams. You know? mm-hmm. We'll be back with more from Mike and Rick after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card 
or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more of Rick's conversation with Mike Campbell. So then after the, so you did three with Ivine. They got more comfortable as they went because you learned from the first experience, which was the hardest. But it also got stale. The relationship got stale because we were too familiar. Mm. And then what was next? Jeff Lynn. Mm-hmm. Jeff Lynn shows up, and there's a whole new wave of amazing creativity just happened. So all these songs came in, and I, I think it makes. As I'm talking about this, it sounds like when all the elements sort of fall into place, the creative light comes on. You know what I mean? It did for us anyway. Mm-hmm. Like we got maybe a little stale after those three albums, mm-hmm. and then we had Full Moon Fever, which was just like a First of great songs. Absolutely. New production, excitement, interest, discovery. It was a whole new thing. It, it all just came together. But mm-hmm. without the songs, it wouldn't happen. But the songs, I think, were triggered by all the energy, mm-hmm. new fresh energy, you know. And then when we worked with you, too, it was fresh energy, yeah. you know, a new perspective, new challenges. Let's talk about Running Down a Dream because that just from, I, I don't think I ever told you this, but that's the song that that really got me into the band. I wrote that one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and that's the one that really got me in, like that's the one that made me a fan. So how did it come about? What was- Well, uh, if you want the true story- Yes, why not? <laughs> um, it's interesting. You would never think this. <clears throat> but I mean, I write, I'm writing all, I'm writing right now. I'm always writing, okay? But I heard about this band, Jane's Addiction. Mm-hmm. And they were playing at Devonshire, the- some community center or something. And I said, let's go see this band. And I didn't like them that much, but there was something about the rhythm or something. I thought, that's interesting. So I went back home and uh, 
I think that night, and I picked up the guitar, and running down a dream was originally I I was thinking of it at halftime. Which is the groove that I heard them playing. Wow. Would have been great halftime also, as well, I hear you sing it. <laughs> uh, well, so I did a demo, yeah. that version, not thinking much about it, gave it to Tom. He played it for Jeff. They had just hooked up and were uh, sharing ideas. And he said, oh, Mike's got this demo. And Jeff goes, it should be double time. And it became that. Yeah. So, you know, that's when he, songs are so mysterious. Where do they come from? If I hadn't gone to that gig, if I hadn't done it halftime, if Jeff hadn't heard it double time, who knows? It, it's, it's magic. It just, I mean, it's beyond me, really. It just happens in spite of me. Yeah, it's so interesting, though, to see to see those connections and to look back. And then, like, that, then you hear it yeah. in that finished version, having no, nothing about that, yeah. and something connects with you. It's a great driving song. It's, it's, I used to drive around Los Angeles. I had just moved to Los Angeles. I used to drive around, and I listened to that album over and over and over again, oh. I don't know, a million times, forever. It's hard not to speed up when that song comes <laughs> I've had that experience, too, like, oh, yeah. I would go, another penny for us. I remember I called uh, Al Teller, who was the person who was running the label that you were on at the time, who I had known from, um, he was the chairman of Columbia Records, president of Columbia Records when we had Def Jam there. So I knew him. And now he was at MCA. And I called him up and I said, hey, just want to let you know, if there's ever an opportunity for me to work with these guys, I would love to do that. And he said, uh, well, that's oh, cool. not going to, he's like, thank you very much. That's not going to happen. They, <laughs> I swear it was an amazing conversation. He's like, they work with Jeff Lynn and um, thanks for the call, but no interest. It's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> so shot down. And then. Um, oh yeah, it's just coming back to me now. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, I was having lunch with Mo Austin and he said, uh, can I tell you a secret? I said, sure. He's like, well, it's a secret, but, but we signed Tom Petty. It's like. How did that happen? It's like, well, they have one record left, so no one's allowed to know. But he wanted to be with us, and we made the deal. And and I said, well, if there's ever an opportunity to work with him, it's like, well, yeah, I think you should meet with him. And and he set it up then. It was like, it was amazing how it came around quickly. You know how I remember it? And tell me if I'm wrong. No, tell me. I remember, I think I was on tour in uh, Europe or someplace, and somebody called me. And said, Rick Rubin wants to talk to you, or had, or or somebody told me that you that you had liked the record, or something. And I remember saying to Tom, "We should get this guy Rick Rubin in. He might be a good producer. Maybe you don't know this or not." No, I don't know that. I had a little bit to do with no, it great. at the beginning. Great. And I don't know. I'm trying to remember wh- why I knew you, where I knew you from. Probably the Chili Peppers, because I like like the sound of one of the Chili mm-hmm. Peppers. And I think, and we were, we were going, we're going to move away from, you know, we've done Jeff two albums. We should do something, get more back to live band because Jeff isn't live band. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, and I think you had contacted me. I had gotten some, some for some reason, 
I had the impetus to say to Tom, there's this guy that I think would be good. Wow. And he's interested. And he said, okay. And then we came in. Amazing. That's how I remember. I could have it wrong. No, it's amazing. It could be. I, again, I have no idea. So all you I, owe me. <laughs> <laughs> all I know was Mo, the Mo connection. Mo connection. That was what I remember the Mo Interesting. Well, it all happened. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was another phase of yeah. creativity. Talk talk more about Jeff's the Jeff phase because I I love the I love those records, um, and as you say, it was very different than anything you had done before it. So talk yeah. about how those were made. It's a it was such a, a wonderful experience working with Jeff, and so eye opening and educational. Uh, Tom and I had always made records, uh, mostly occasionally with a demo but mostly band playing live at the same time. And Jeff never does that. So they had uh, bumped into each other and had this song, Free Fallen, and they wanted to record a demo. Meant to be. So they came over to my little house, which I had a little soundcraft studio in a back bedroom. And a, uh, I did have a 24-track uh, machine. And they've got this song, Free Fallen, and... Jeff proceeded to, to lead the recording. And my jaw just dropped watching this guy. And I mean, I could go on and on about it. I don't know how much deeply you want to get into no, it. And I'm not going to give away any of his secrets, although <laughs> I could because people learn the secrets. They still can't do it because yeah. he just does it. But one thing that blew my mind was we had this song. And Free Fallen is a very simple song. Mm -hmm. you know, There's three chords. And uh, he made it, he crafted it into this three-minute piece. We he came, they, we came over at 12 noon, and by 6 o'clock, the thing was done. Background vocals, guitar parts, everything, percussion, done, finished. What else you got? Wow. And I'd never seen it done that fast before. And it's because he knew how to get what he wanted really fast. What was the order of events that he Okay, would... here's how you would, here's the Jeff Lynn sorry Jeff. The formula. The the formula of which no one can touch you, so I can <laughs> say this. We would go in, uh the song was written on acoustic guitar. We'd we'd learn it. Okay. Let's go we we'd get a one secret to that formula is we used a drum machine, because we didn't have a drummer, it was just the three of us. But the drum machine was Dead simple, just ch 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 boom, boom, the simplest possible. No pattern. bump, 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 nothing. It's boom, boom, so it leaves plenty of room for other rhythms, other basses. You can change it later, but to start with, just a, basically a metronome, but with a drum machine with good sounds. Mm -hmm. So we go out and play this song down on acoustic guitar. Okay, let's double that, you know, two or three at a time. Let's do that again. So now you got six acoustic guitars going, shing, 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 sounds really rich. Okay, then we'd go, okay, let's let's put a guide vocal on it, which most usually became the real vocal. So we know where the verses and choruses are. And then most likely Jeff had this sound on a, a OBX synthesizer, it was just a, a pad sound, like a harmonium sound. And he would put that in following the chords of the acoustic guitar, which would just be underneath it, which kind of glued it all together. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the background vocals. Because it's on a drum machine, the tempo does not change from one chorus to the next. 
So basically, we work on the one chorus. We pop that into all the choruses, done. The one chorus, okay, we're on a 24-track analog machine. I don't know how technical you want to get stop me or cut no, it out fine. later. But uh, I've been told you this before, maybe. You probably like this because you're a producer. Um, so we had a 24-track machine. Okay, we already put like s six tracks of double acoustic guitars. Got Maybe we used up eight tracks, okay? And okay, the vocals, we're going to need like 20 tracks for the vocals. So we make a slave. We maybe do a rough mix down to the two-inch or the, the quarter-inch, get a fresh piece of 24-track tape, Take that stereo mix, put it onto two tracks there. You got 22 tracks open. Then we go to the chorus. Okay. I'm free. Okay. Let's sing that together. I'm free. Let's do it six times. So there's 12 voices going, I'm free. I'm free. Okay, let's do Harmony. 12 of those. Mm -hmm. You build the thing. And Jeff just knew which notes to do and how to move the you know, but it was usually him and Tom singing together on the backgrounds to make a sound. Mm -hmm. But you end up with this glob of the chorus comes on, it's like, you know, this big sound. Then the tricky part was, okay, now you take the 24 track and you mute the guitars. It's all vocals. You blend them together. You copy them over to the quarter inch. Okay. So now all those 20 tracks or whatever are in stereo on two tracks. You put the master 24 track back up, and then you sit there and you count one, two, three, four, play, until you get it in sync on each chorus. So now you're back on your master. You've only used up two tracks, and you've got these huge 20 track choruses coming in. Amazing. And you can do that with a guitar lick. You can do that with anything. And it's kind of fun. You know, like, oh, we missed it. Do it again. One, two, three, four. Okay, one more time. You know, very analog organic. But yeah. when you get it, okay, there it is, you know. Nowadays, you just push a button and Pro Tools will do that for you in two seconds. But it was kind of fun doing it. You had to get down on your knees and, you know, and mark it and stuff. Mark the tape so you know where to start from. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, really good. Amazing. But then, so the record was, you know, you remember spent more than two days. So would you put the drums on last? Yeah. So we've got a drum machine. And we would keep the kick drum because we had this really good Lindrum kick drum. Mm -hmm. And the hi-hat just as a uh, behind it. And we'd overdub the snare drum by itself. And the advantage to that, if you listen to Jeff's records, the drums have a really unique, each drum is open because they're not all fighting for the sonic space at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you're just doing the snare drum. You put all the mics up, hit the snare, this beautiful snare sound without cymbals or anything else. And uh, we had this guy, Phil Jones, uh, a drummer, percussionist, who would come in. He'd sit there and put a towel on his leg and <laughs> live performance of the snare drum. If he got off, we'd stop, pick it up. But it's not like a sample triggering. He's actually playing it. And if there's a drum fill coming up, we'd stop. Okay, we need a drum fill. Da -da 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 -da. Okay, got that. Go back to the song. <laughs> And then tom-tom, we need a tom-tom fill. Okay, let's go. Once again, toms by themselves, cymbals by themselves. So the, they were orchestrated, and that's why they, those records that he makes sound so beautiful because nothing's getting in the way sonically of anything else. But, you know, that's that's the the basic uh, uh, formula. But when, when, when did, um, where in that story is 
when did Don't Come Around Here No More happen? Because that was also made in a more mechanical way, yes? Mm. It was the previous album. That was Dave Stewart. Did you do a whole album with Dave? No, just that song. Or two song, two or three songs. That was done with the drum machine. That was during uh, Hard Promises, which is an album that got bogged down. We got bogged down a little bit what we were trying to do. And he came along and had this uh, demo, which Tom liked. And we... Uh, it started with a, a drum machine loop of some sort, and Dave did his thing. And at the end, we had the whole band come on and do the, the ending and play it out, you know, so it sounded like a band. It's kind of a mix of both worlds. Cool. And That was what? supposed to be Stevie Nicks' song. Was it? Iovine was hooked up with Dave. Mm-hmm. and working with Stevie. And so he heard that song. He said, oh, well, and your rhythmics aren't doing this. Can I have it for Stevie? And she hated it. So Jimmy said, oh, well, how about Tom? <laughs> so we, it came down the line to us. There you go. We'll be right back with more from Mike Campbell after a quick break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with the rest of Mike and Rick's conversation and his new song, Southern Boy, from his band, The Dirty Knobs album, Reckless Abandon. 
What What are your first memories of um, of our working together? Because that's what came next in the in the story. Oh, first thing that pops into mind is you wrecked me, um, Chris. We were auditioning drummers at the time. I don't know if you were part of the drummer. Yeah, you were. I remember. And I just remember uh, you showed up, and you were really good with uh, helping us pick the songs. And talking about what type of songs you might want to try to write, and getting the grooves right, like you don't know how it feels. I remember that was a discussion about some Steve Miller song. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could take a groove like that and make a song out of it mm -hmm. in our own way. There's a lot of ideas come from other things, and you make it your own. But uh, that's what I remember most is being really deep into the song choices and the grooves and the sounds. We didn't seem to struggle with sounds too much. It didn't feel like it was hard to get that band to sound good. No, felt like it, it just naturally sounded so good. I don't remember struggling at all. Mm -hmm. Not like torpedoes. No, the sounds were always pretty good, and we just worked on the music, you know, and just you know, f dropping bad songs and bringing in better ones. Yeah, I remember the only song that was written when I came the first time um, was um, "Good to Be King." Was the song that Tom already had, mm. and um, good one. And I remember coming to your house, and we listened to it. And I think there was, there may have been a, de I think there was a demo for we it. We had cut a demo at yeah. my house, yeah, funky sounding demo. But yeah. we had the idea of it. Yeah, I remember that. But I remember that was all there was, and then we just sort of talked about what could be the rest of the, what else the rest of it could look like. Mm -hmm. I, you know, as we're talking about this and look back over the project, I see a theme appearing. And the theme seems to uh, to be when the elements all come together, you got the right people in the right space and time. The songs materialize. Yeah, I can I can tell you one thing that I I always I don't I've never I don't remember ever voicing this before, but I remember feeling over time that with Tom I felt like on the first album on Wildflowers, our first album together he really wanted to impress me. He worked hard to impress me. And once he felt like he had done that on that album, I never felt like he tried as hard again on any of the other things we did. I think he always did, you know, did great. But That's it was a nature, different, though, isn't it? it was a different, like, I want to win over this new person. Yeah. And I think it sounds like that kept happening with the different people over the years. Well, that's a reoccurring thing, too. I mean... Uh, somebody said a producer shouldn't work with a band for more than two records because the first thing you're trying to impress each other and, and pull the best out. And then it's like, okay, now we're going to do it again. Do the same yeah. thing again. You already know you're not impressed with me. I'm already, I already know, you know what you can, what you're capable of. And there's no mystery about it. I think mm -hmm. the mystery and, and the danger is what brings out the really great stuff. But uh, yeah, you could say that about all the Jeff too. It reached a point where well, you know, it's almost like as an artist, and I can't speak for Tom, but I can speak for myself and mm -hmm. maybe partially for him because I know him really well. You have a producer. You're, the producer is to bring out the best in you. 100%. And to keep you from getting up your up, lost up your own ass, which is easy to do when you're producing yourself. Okay, so when you first get with the producer, you want to make that connection where he pushes you. And you can prove to him what you can do, you know. And 
you're interested in everything he says because it's new. And, oh, that's really smart. I hadn't thought of that. After a couple of hours or two, if I, if I play this song, I already know what you're going to think of it because I know you now. Mm-hmm. And you can still do good work, but if you don't, you only get one shot at that initial thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It's, it's, like I said, it's hard to talk about music sometimes because words fail you. But it's very mystical and where songs come from and where you know great records just happen, it's kind of a, just a, a blessing and a, a mystery, you know, and luck. So then after that, what was the next period? I was going to say, it's like with the, I think with Tom and you, I think it got to a point too where at the beginning you pushed him like that verse can be better mm-hmm. or that song can mm-hmm. be better. And he listened to you. Mm-hmm. And I think you reach a point too where when you're really like confident in yourself, like I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to do it my way. Yeah. And I don't really want that opinion right now at this point. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be bothered with your point of view. I don't want you analyzing or critiquing what I want to do. I just want to go do it. Yeah. And which is fine. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing personal. It's just of uh, creative energy. So I think uh, after... I also remember there was a period where I can't remember which album it was towards the end of the ones that we made together where Tom sort of went through a dark phase. If you remember, he showed up at the studio with a cane. Oh, Echo. Yeah, and it, yeah. he was not the regular Tom. Well, there were personal problems going on there. Yeah. It affects everything, too. Absolutely. But you re- you remember it was like the whole energy. I remember the whole energy shifted dark. for a while. It was dark yeah. and sad. Yeah. And... Uh, I'd rather not remember too much of that, but you're right. Yeah. It was a phase we went through. I think through some there were some interesting songs that came out of it, nonetheless, yeah. like... Um, uh, Echo was a good song. Yeah, uh, Room at the Top of the World the was top. there. Mm-hmm. There were some good songs. But it was a, it was a you know, you're in, in life you know, or, or in, in, in creativity, you go through ups and downs and dark periods and... Yeah. Bright periods, and I remember it felt less period. fun being in the studio at that time. It wasn't fun, no. That that little window, and that's the thing. Me personally, and we did that, and we lived through it, and we survived that. Yeah. But me personally, especially at this point in my life, like I just did this record with my own band, and it's fun. Yeah, it's got to be. I make it fun, you know. Sure. And if, when when guys are having fun, you can hear it. You can Absolutely. feel it. You can tell. I'll be happy when you get to hear my record. Yeah, I can't wait. You want? Should we listen to a song now? It's a really good record. Great. I want to hear. Yeah. Well, let's just play it. This is the one that got a little bit of an Angus rhythm guitar in it. Great groove. Thank you. Who's Who's in the band? It's me, Matt Log on the drums, my friend Jason Sinead on guitar, and Lance Morrison on the bass. So cool. Yeah. You know, I remember that was really fun. Um, while we were making Wildflowers, we went into uh, Ocean Way with the with the Heartbreakers, and we did a few, in, in a short time, in a few days, we recorded about 100 songs. I don't know if you remember that, but it ended up being most of what's on that box set. Oh, okay. We did a lot of covers. Okay. We had the playback set. Yeah. But uh, I did Do you remember big- that? Be, do you remember going to Ocean Way? And it Vaguely. was Tom. It was Tom's idea. Was I think it was, um, 
the old record company was going to put out a greatest hits record and they needed two songs for the greatest hits album. And the album Wildflowers was going to be a quote unquote Tom Petty solo record and it had a different vibe. And we were doing that at Sound City. Mm-hmm. And Tom said, well, for the two songs, I don't want to record them in the Wildflowers setting. Let's set up a different studio. We'll do mm-hmm. it completely differently. And we did the the two songs for that album, which were- um, Mary Jane. Mary Jane and the cover- uh, Something in the Air. Something in the Air. But, but we also recorded- a million covers, just for fun. Mary Jane sure turned out good. Yeah, I can remember. Also, I don't know. I don't even know if you know this story, but um, Tom sent me a rehearsal tape of song ideas, and um, and he's like, "Okay, what what do you think?" Because it was like a separate writing session for the greatest hits. Like, mm-hmm. what's going to be on the greatest hits? And it had a a bunch of songs on it. And I remember not liking any of it. I just didn't think it was good. But in between, in between a couple of the songs or in between one of the songs, there was the guitar riff and it was you playing what ended up being Last Dance with Mary Jane. Oh. That guitar riff was like, it wasn't one of the songs on the tape. It was just a riff in between songs. Yeah, that happens a lot. Like a preparation riff. Yeah. Yeah, that happens a lot with, a, with with our band between the songs. Yeah, and I remember saying to Tom, it's like, that is the song. Whatever that is, is the song. Cool. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Mystery. Yeah, it worked it, out. It worked out, yeah. Hmm. Crazy. What a life. Amazing. I'm starting to feel old now. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I mean, a lot of people, we've had, we had uh, several peaks and most bands are lucky to get one. Absolutely. And I, I don't know, we're just blessed, but I think we just, you know, Tom and to some extent me tuned into some songs that, that are timeless. Absolutely. What was the energy like on the last tour? It was great. It really was beautiful. And uh, we had no idea. I mean, he had a little a bit of hip pain, but... I know if it had been really bad, we'd have heard about it. Yeah, it was just a minor nuance, uh, and he was happy. And I remember the last the last gig at the Hollywood Bowl. I looked at his face at one point, and he was just beaming. Yeah. And he was so proud of the audience, and so proud of him and the band, and to be in that moment. And I remember thinking, like, "Wow, I want to, I want my head to be in that space." <laughs> <laughs> so it was a beautiful tour. I mean, yeah. If you got to go out, that's a good way to go out. I still can't believe he's gone. How many, two years now? Or over two years? Yeah, I'm okay with it most of the time. It hits me every now and then, but, you know, you have to. just makes no sense. It's bizarre. But I guess life doesn't. doesn't make sense. A mishap, you know. Um, I try not to dwell on it too much. Of course. I'm very proud of what we did, though. When I hear stuff on the radio, I go, that's good work. You know, that was where I remember the day after getting the news. It was at dinner in a place in Santa Monica. And um, one of the songs from the first, one of the songs from the first album came on. Just, I don't know if it was 
in memorial or if they just happen, if it just happened mm-hmm. to come on in a playlist. And I remember feeling like in hearing the music, I felt like, oh, he's more alive than ever before. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is, this is a lot. This is alive. Yeah. We're here. Like this lives. That's the beauty of music. Yeah. Yeah. Music is forever. Thanks to Mike Campbell for running down the history of the Heartbreakers and sharing his new music with Rick. You can hear all of our favorite music featuring Mike Campbell by checking out the playlist for this episode at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Milo Bell, and Leah Rose for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.